0: He's a jolly fat man with a funny hat. And it has nothing to do with Christmas. This is the Watchdog Morning Show with Howard Monroe. The news had come out in the First World War. The bloody Red Baron was flying once more. The Allied Command ignored all of it. All well, holiday bumper music has been for the last couple of weeks. It will be all this week as well. I love that song. You like that song, Bob?
1: No, I hate it. Uh, I remember being five or six you years old. Hate that song. I hate it because I got it for Christmas one, one, one Christmas, and I got a record player, and I got this album. A forty-five. I, I think I got little little both. My memory—I was thinking of that. I think I had the. Uh, I think I had the forty-five, and then there was an album version, and I just I, I hate it.
0: Oh, I love it, Snoopy and the Red Baron. How can you not oh, love yeah. Snoopy How is- with his Red Baron
1: sash Nothing's, flying and his nothing says Christmas like shooting an airplane out of the sky. Yes, well, uh, there
0: is that. But it's just. Uh, I love that song, Snoopy and the Red Baron. All right. Well, thank you for playing it, even if you didn't like it. I appreciate that. We are talking this week. Uh, all of this is going to be an all Christmas week. I'm, I'm setting much of the politics aside. We'll have a few little odds and ends, but setting much of the politics aside, this is Christmas week. We have a big Christmas party on Friday that you're welcome to. We're doing letters to Santa Claus each evening, beginning tonight. Uh, so it's Christmas, and we're devoting some uh, a, a piece every day to nostalgia here in the Upper Ohio Valley. We're going to talk about Elm Grove as a as a community. Uh, tomorrow we're going to talk about later in the week we are going to talk about uh, downtown wheeling traditions of christmas back in the old day but today i want to talk about a chain of stores that uh, had, i had my first job at the, one of these and tremendously popular around this area and indeed around the entire region and those were the isley's stores featured a lot of the the, the iconic items chip chopped ham still can get that uh, was from Isley's. I chipped the ham. I chipped the chopped ham sometimes. Uh, the Klondike's were from there and the great skyscraper ice cream cones, which Brian Butko, I could never get when I worked at Isley's, I could just never get the hang of doing a skyscraper.
2: Yeah. They look uh, pretty tough to make.
0: <laughs> you know, a scoop is one thing, but getting that whole skyscraper just right and getting it on top without it falling. And uh, the owner of the store was perpetually telling me, get out of the way, Monroe, let somebody do it who knows how who knows how to do it. But it was a great place to work. How, when did Isley's get started?
2: Well, they are a pretty proud family of their heritage. They trace all the way back to the 1830s over in Switzerland, and uh, Christian Isley and his wife Verena coming over with their two children and supposedly even bringing their cheese kettle across the Atlantic and across Pennsylvania and down the Ohio River. Um, But it was their grandson who um, moved up uh, into Ohio later in uh, uh, the late 1890s. And that's right when milk was becoming pasteurized. And uh, the idea was uh, that instead of the farmers delivering their milk uh, one house at a time, he invited them to bring their milk to his plant, he would pasteurize it, bottle it, and then he would do the delivery. So um, he wasn't the first, but it was a pretty unique idea, and that's where the whole family company traces back to.
0: So when did they become, at least the early version of what we had come to know them as here in the in the fifties and sixties here in the Upper Ohio Valley, the the iconic deli ice cream type store,
2: right? Well, uh about nineteen seventeen they were already selling the ice cream back at the back of the plant and they thought, well, why not open a store on the other end of town? And so um from that idea they realized that they could uh operate each level from the cows uh and the farmers to the plant to the stores. And it was really when they expanded. By then, they started expanding across Ohio Youngstown and Marion, and uh, they came to Pittsburgh. And that was really the turning point, because um, they standardized the stores, what we think of now, that iconic uh, shiny white front and uh, the deli case and the ice cream counter. And so from the early 1930s uh, for the next 30 years, they really expanded all across uh, western Pennsylvania, Ohio, and uh, northern West Virginia.
0: You you said they started in Ohio, but they really are known as a Pittsburgh-based company. Uh, They were, at least I think they were, during during their heyday, right?
2: Right. They uh, were in Ohio for a good 30 years. But uh, it's Pittsburgh that became the main plant, and Pittsburgh was their final home in the area where their headquarters were. So, yeah, we tend to think of it as a Pittsburgh or Western Pennsylvania company.
0: Isley's had some very iconic items. We've talked, we've mentioned them briefly. In fact, I think it's the name of one of your books. They had the Klondikes, they had the Chip Chopped Ham. They had the skyscraper. I'm trying to think of anything else. But these were very iconic, very identifiable with Isley's, and you didn't get them anywhere else. Was that a, by design to create a, a unique product, or was it just they created products that people liked and that's what they became famous for?
2: Yeah, well, that's a good point. People always said that um, luck seemed to run the Isley's way, everything from the look of their stores to the way the name rolled off please. But um, I think it's because it, it, the original founder, William, he had uh, four sons uh, and even the two daughters, their husbands were involved. And so being family run, uh, they were always right there and they always wanted to reinvest the profits, either pay the farmers more, pay the workers more, or Um, reinvest in the equipment, in the, um, products and, you know, owning the factory, you weren't paying a middleman. So it was going right from the plant. They would make deliveries twice a day to the stores. And I think it's, it grew out of that, that the products, the ones you mentioned and, um, other things like the brick ice cream flavors or, um, White House ice cream they were known for with the cherries, uh, they were products that became iconic but I don't think they started out intentionally planning them they just cared a lot about what they were doing the uh,
0: the, the the chip chopped ham has become almost a uh, well, it is iconic it's almost a uh, a unicorn you know out there chip chopped ham I remember you know you can still go to the store and get that but I remember you, you you can go to the store and order chipped ham I remember the first time not the first time but I remember times when uh I, I would get chipped ham and bring it home and I'm been going oh this is what I'm looking for and I tell you no this isn't ice what what's the this doesn't taste the same this is just like chipped ham what made chipped chopped ham so special well
2: I think they again Uh, had suppliers they weren't making it themselves in their plants but um uh like wrath in chicago they were getting it from one or two of the big meat suppliers and they always made sure it wasn't as fatty as some of the other brands um and you know the chop part refers to people nowadays say "Well, why do i have to say chip chopped ham well you, you don't have to but chopped means that it's that loaf that it's not ham off the bone right that uh it used to be called pressed ham. And as early as 1960, Isley's actually trademarked chipped, chopped ham because it's you're chipping the chopped ham, that loaf of ham that's put in that rectangular shape and baked. And so, as they would say, you could go down the street and other places would be chipping ham, but it was fattier and greasier. Um, Isley's always had higher standards for theirs.
0: So what happened to Isley's? I, uh, I mean, it, it, it had a very big regional success. I know here in the Upper Ohio Valley, we had one in the Elm Grove section of Wheeling. That's where I worked. Uh, there was, uh, I think, I don't think, I know there was one in downtown Wheeling. I think there was one in Martins Ferry, Ohio. might have been one in Bel Air. They were, uh, they were not, if not ubiquitous, at least there were several of them here in the Upper Ohio Valley, all popular. Um, and then at some point, they began to fade away. Is it just the, the general you know, the general flow and cycle of retail, or did something happen to Isley's?
2: Yeah, that's uh, the best question of all, and that's what inspired me, because I grew up with them. We had um, uh, one in every neighborhood. um, McKeesport, a little town near me, had five of them across the city, so uh, all of a sudden, uh, they seemed to be everywhere, and then all of a sudden, they were gone, and so that's what I wondered. How can they have been so popular, everybody seemed to love them, and then they disappeared and so um there were a number of reasons. one of them is uh william's sons uh they all passed away early in in their forties, and so now you had um uh sixteen eighteen cousins, all with different ideas, some want to run the company, some just want the uh dividends um some were interested in say the refrigeration or the design and so that gets kind of hard with any family. And then um, leaves had peaked probably uh, about 1950, and so the decline started after that. You know, they were in every downtown, but what's happening in the 1950s? Little shopping centers are being built at the edge of town, or Dairy Queen. or well, Downtowns are going away, yeah. Right, and so Isley's was building in those too, but when you have hundreds of stores in downtown locations, that's kind of hard to do, you know, and uh, uh, by the late 60s, supermarkets had come in and mini-marts, and so instead of shopping downtown and feeding the meter, you just went uh, to the supermarket and free parking and you did all your shopping in one place and it was new and exciting and you know the skyscraper cones or klondike that was exciting in the early days because people didn't have freezers at home or very big freezers and of course by the 60s well everybody had them and so just combine all that into one thing and uh even fast food restaurants even Eaton Park had come along and so uh trying to respond to all that. Um, Isley's actually did open. Uh, They called them at first Isley Shops and then they changed it to Sweet Williams. And um, there were a couple Fairmont, West Virginia had one, Morgantown in the mall. But uh, again, it was a hard thing to change when a company does one thing so well um, to switch gears and do something else. It's easy to look back and guess what they should have done but at the time uh, they didn't know what would be the next trend in retail
1: and to me brian what's even more puzzling is you know you back in those days i'm a little bit younger than howard but you had a couple options when you're talking about ice cream you had eisley's it was different you could go in and have lunch where the dairy queen you walked up to the window they wouldn't even let you in the building yet and they would hand it out the window eisley's went away but Dairy Queen now you you go in and they offer the same things basically that Isley's did and they're thriving so it is kind of puzzling
2: right and I think because Isley's was still using china and tablecloths and silverware and you know the Dairy Queen figured out even if you go inside you know it's a disposable cone and uh um plastic spoon or whatever. Um, So it was just that whole idea that was hard. You know, William Isley was a farmer. His children were all born on a farm. And so it was quite a different world in the 1950s and 60s for them to adapt their thinking to. And I think that's pretty common as we all get older. We think the things we grew up with, we can still adapt to the modern world, not realizing that they're have been passed by decades ago and there's new ideas
0: yeah and there are reasons that they've been passed by i mean there's, there's a reason things have changed so um the uh things that eyes the things that isley's were were just so special but that wasn't enough to carry him through i mean it just wasn't enough to carry him through i remember as the stores began to diminish here in the upper ohio valley and everybody would bemoan the fact that it was gone uh but but that was—that's the nature, I guess, of, of, of businesses. Um, but you can still get a lot of the Isley's products. Klondikes are still available in. Um, uh, you can go, I can go over to, to Kroger's or Respects and get myself a bag of Klondikes. So they're still available, uh, just not in an Isley store anymore.
2: Right, and I would say. Uh Putting Klondacks in grocery stores was, and again, one of the reasons that made the stores not as special. And, you know, in the early days, they had the pink centers where if you had a pink center, then you got a free Klondike. Well, when you're in the store, right. that was pretty fun and exciting and easy. But as people started getting cars you know, that drive 10 miles down the road and have to go back. So they came up with the little slips, the pink center slips, and then they started putting them in six packs. Uh, and then, as you said, in grocery stores. But I think the there's the perfect example when um, eventually the company was bought out by Unilever, one of the world's largest food conglomerates. And, you know, it was pretty quickly realized that, one factory, one or two factories can put out uh, thousands of conducts per day. So instead of having 300 stores where you have overhead, you have workers, um, you have the real estate, uh, customers slip on the floor and sue you, and you have to stock that case and have a, a restaurant in back. Instead, you have a factory or two that just, you have four workers that crank out conducts 24 hours a day, and then they ship them to the grocery stores and let them worry about the merchandising and all that. So, um, you know, it it makes you either want to be really angry or want to buy stock in Unilever when you realize (laughs) that that's a pretty smart concept. And so that's the exact summation. But it's the same thing Isley's did to the mom and pop stores in 1940. They had a better idea. They standardized their products and they put those corner stores out of business and now that it did it to themselves with their one product
0: you know i think back to isley's when i worked there and and people would come and do they went to grocery shopping but they do food shopping there and then we get the chip chopped ham they would buy you know potato salad or things like that out of the deli case that we had i remember that because i had to stock the spreads as we call them all the time um and then of course uh, as supermarkets came on board and you know grocery stores expanded it you didn't go to the local place to do that anymore and um, and eventually you didn't go in there to eat either uh, the store I worked at was as I said at the beginning of the segment we were he was very lucky the owner of the store was very lucky because uh, we were there right at the time I 70 was being built in our area I mean the construction workers could walk from their construction site of interstate 70 to the store yeah. we would have hundreds of construction workers every day for lunch that kept the business going might have done, might have gone out of business sooner, maybe if he didn't uh, didn't have all of that. Um, so, cycle of business, as I said earlier, is just, is is just is just something. The Sorry. Klondikes are still around. You can buy them in grocery stores, uh, whether they're the same or not. But I think they are. You can buy them. In, you can buy the Klondikes. Uh, chip chopped ham is available for. You have to make sure you ask for it the right way and make sure the people actually have it. But chip chopped <laughs> ham can be bought in many deli markets. Um, skyscrapers though i don't know of anybody who does a skyscraper there may be individual you know private ice cream stores that do it but i don't think the skyscraper is around much anymore
2: no they actually got rid of them in the 60s and um uh because by then baskin robbins you could get a double or triple cone different flavors um you couldn't do that with a skyscraper and as you said they were hard to make in fact when i went looking for the patent for the scoop and no one could find it well it, it's because it wasn't even called a scoop because you're it was called a spoon because as you know you actually carve it out of the ice cream you don't scoop it and so uh about 1968 they dug a hole behind the pittsburgh plant and buried all the scoops there and paved it over because they didn't want to use them anymore and uh as you know they still show up people have them in their china closet or you see them in an antique mall and uh as i asked the owner then bill eisley he said well that's because everybody pocketed one and took one home when they found out we were getting rid of them
0: (laughs) you mean there's a scoop graveyard someplace
2: there is right behind the uh, Pittsburgh plant, and uh, it hasn't been an ice cream plant for years. It's now part of uh, McGee Hospital offices, but beautiful Art Deco plant is still there. And yeah, if you, uh, I guess, if you take a good metal detector out back somewhere down there, are um, uh, hundreds of skyscraper scoops.
0: <laughs> I, as I said before, I could never master it, I, I couldn't do it, I couldn't scoop the skyscraper. It was much to my embarrassment and disappointment. I would try, and I would try, and I would dig, and I and you're right, you carved it, you didn't scoop it. I carved it, and I, I just couldn't get it. I'd get it out, and by the time I get into the cone, it would all fall apart again. It took a, it, you know, you had to, you had to be trained on that thing, but uh, it was, uh, it was a fun place to work. It was a hard place to work, but it was a fun place to work. I mean, hard because the, you know, you were busy all the time if you were just a scut guy like I was, but. Uh, but it was a fun, and it's a time of your life. You look back and you say, "Yeah, that was, you know, that was kind of fun." I think a lot of us still do that. There, there is a lot of nostalgia in this area, Brian, and you, you have written about it in a couple of different ways. You've written a couple of books about um, the uh, Isley Store. Um, you've written some other books of regional history that folks might be interested in as well. Maybe we should just briefly mention some of those things. You've got one on diners of Pennsylvania. You do a lot of work with the Lincoln Highway, right?
2: Yeah, I've written a lot about uh, the Lincoln Highway, which uh, was established in 1913 to connect uh, New York to San Francisco, and really at a time when uh, people took trains if they wanted to go between cities, uh, there were really no roads except farmer roads, so um, there's a lot of the Lincoln Highway left, so a lot of people, that's what they enjoy uh, doing, so uh, A lot of it's been bypassed by uh, Route Thirty. So when you drive Route Thirty, you see old uh, concrete branching off into the woods, and that's the old Lincoln Highway. Or or it goes through towns like Bedford, PA, Ligonier, PA, while the highway bypasses it, much like um, Elm Grove got bypassed. And so whether it's the National Road or Lincoln Highway, people love exploring those. And then um, my hometown park, Kennywood Park written some books on that um it's uh going to be celebrating its 125th year uh this coming Mm. year so um uh for how much it's modernized there's so many uh parts of the past there and so that's really why i got into all this that fascination uh with people who were as alive as you and me and um i like to tell their stories uh you know so many books written about uh uh industrialists or wars and i wanted to find out what the waitresses were doing and uh people driving the trucks and just the regular people what they thought of their world
0: i have two last questions for you brian number one if people are interested in the eisley's books or anything else where can they go I'm i'm sure they can go online where can they go to see the books you've written or to find out more about the books you've written
2: well some bookstores have them but if not um Uh, My recent books have been published by the Heinz History Center, so uh, you can just go to HeinzHistoryCenter.org and uh, uh, click the menu, and there's a shop, and in the shop are the books about Kennywood and Isley's, or um, some of them are sometimes on Amazon or Barnes & Noble, especially my Lincoln Highway books. So uh, they're out there, and uh, libraries have them, too, if you can't afford that. Um, um, My main goal is just to have people read and enjoy them.
0: And my final question is, will you come back someday and talk about some more of these things?
2: Oh, yeah. I'd be glad to. I have a number of books underway, too, and uh, it's fun uh, working on all of those.
0: What are you working on? I said two questions. That was three. But
2: (laughs) What are you working on? oh well uh let's see uh one book about all the uh, uh men and women in local aviation back in the teens and 20s when they were barnstorming that's a lot of fun uh a giant kennywood book just devoted to all the blueprints and artist renderings things like that um a memoir of a boy who growing up in 1930s los angeles and his parents owned a hotel he we went to catholic school and uh Uh, liked hiking and uh, lettered in tennis, but here when Pearl Harbor was bombed, his parents had come from Japan, so uh, next thing he knew, he was on a cattle car to uh, uh, live in horse stalls at the Santa Anita racetrack, so part of that, uh, uh, the roundup after bombing of Pearl Harbor of Japanese citizens, he was a U.S. citizen, and that he became a historian, and he helped found a uh, he was a co-founder of the University of Hilo, Hawaii, and so he wrote, wrote pretty passionately, both as an American citizen, but also as li- having lived through it. That how could you be imprisoned as a U.S. citizen behind barbed wire and machine guns? Uh, and that's what when the U.S. Army came for volunteers, that's what he stood up and asked, "Well, if you let us go, my mom and sister—his sister was a beauty pageant queen." <laughs> Uh, would be glad to volunteer. And so it actually put a split into the (laughs) Japanese community to this day, which is more loyal to volunteer and say yes, or to stand up and say, well, we're citizens, let us go. And and on the lighter side, I have a novel underway uh, about a haunted quarry uh, and how uh, the ghost from 1890s, uh, interact with today's world so uh, that's my uh, real entertainment these days uh, lightweight uh, uh, historical haunted novel
0: that's uh that's a lot of good stuff I, i'm looking here real quick i just you have a book on roadside giants and one on uh, roadside attractions my wife and i uh, just did um uh, Route 66 this past year we drew, the first half of it we did this year we're going to do the second half of Route 66 next year but we saw a lot wow. of those giants that the t- town still had and and a lot of the roadside attractions it's, it's uh, a lot of good stuff I may grab some of these books and read them just because we saw some of these things as we were as we we're traveling Route 66, it's uh, it's always fun to delve back into our history's past. Brian, I am way behind time. My producer has uh, hit me with the whip here, so I got to move on to the news desk. But uh, thanks for joining us. I will call you someday. We'll talk some more about some of these other things. If you ever want to come on, and have something you want to promote, just let me know. Great conversation. I really appreciate it.
2: Yes, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it.
0: All righty, 17 to the hour here on the Watchdog Morning Show. Sorry, Mister Slider, I'm running behind time. Let's grab some news and stuff. WEST VIRGINIA METRO.